welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 49. We're actually having a return guest back on. So we had uh, Benjamin Dobbs and his wife, uh, Shanna, on a few episodes ago to talk about their joint research project and doing research together and cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary projects. And we didn't get a chance to really talk about something that uh, Ben is really involved in, and that is mentoring undergraduate research in music theory. And so we were like, well, we got to get you back on. And so we had an opening. We we're like, come on back on. Um, and we have a great time talking with uh, Ben. Uh, before we go into the conversation, though, if we could just, uh, Jen, read Ben's bio so we can get a kind of a review of where he is at and what he's all about. Absolutely. So Benjamin Dobbs is assistant professor and coordinator of music theory and composition at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. He earned his PhD in music theory with a related field in music history history from the University of North Texas in 2015. His research interests center broadly on the development of musical style and musical thought during the Protestant Reformation in Middle and North Germany. Benjamin also studies the relationships among students' beliefs about learning, learning behaviors, and learning outcomes in music theory classes. I don't think we have to go and, before our students learn that we're frauds, become an expert in something. I don't think that's necessary. I think that we, first, have to get over our own fear. Second, have to trust our students. And third, have to trust our skills as researchers, right? and as people who know how to take those scholarly skills that we have been developing over you know a decade or decades uh, and apply them to any given new problem or new project and so we got to get over our fears we got to trust our students uh, and we have to know that our skills our skills are broadly applicable um, right because that's what we're trying to teach our students as well right Uh, and then and then we learn alongside of our students. So today our very special guest is Benjamin Dobbs. He's back with us. We had such a good time talking with him a few months ago that we were like, let's have him back on. He has a great voice for podcasts. Thank um, you. And- <laughs> And we're like, we got to get him on to talk about something that's near and dear to your heart, which is uh, mentoring undergraduate research in music theory. And that's something that uh, we haven't actually talked too much about. We've talked about some music theory clubs and some other ways, but we haven't really gotten into working with students, particularly undergraduate students, in doing music theory research, which I think, for me at least personally, I get a little nervous about because I'm not sure what they can do and what's what what's possible so i'm excited to chat with you about this yeah um and so maybe let's just start off by talking about you know you're at Furman. does that does your school have um, a theory degree or other undergraduate degrees that allow for this type of research to go on yeah so Furman is a small liberal arts school um 
pretty rigorous school. We've got about 2,500 students total, and uh, but about 110 music majors right now, which is uh, a pretty large music department for a school that's that size. So almost 5%, if my math hmm. is right, almost 5% of our student body are music majors, which is pretty remarkable uh, for a small liberal arts school that doesn't happen in so many places. Uh, and so as part of a liberal arts environment, we really encourage a robust, uh, broad and deep engagement with uh, with research, no matter what the major is. Uh, and that includes our music students. And so we do have a Bachelor of Music in Music Theory uh, at Furman. We typically have one or two students per year, uh, but that is just the right size and the right uh, number of students for us. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we've got uh, a music theory major, and that is all of the students that I have mentored in research have either been music theory majors or testing the waters to see if they want to be a music theory major. And then I'm, I, I'm proud to say that I think I have a hundred percent success rate with those curious minds, uh, converting them, uh, <laughs> drawing them over to the, uh, to the exciting world of music theory research. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, um, what, 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 uh, what, draws them over? Is it your charisma or is it music theory itself? Or what, what gets them excited about thinking like, oh, this could be something that I pursue as, um, as a degree? You know, Paul, I'd love to say that it were 90% my charisma and 10% music <laughs> theory. I'm pretty sure it's the other way around. Uh, so I have all of our music majors in the sophomore year for music theory. Um, we've got an instructor who teaches first year theory and I teach second year theory. And so I see all of them uh, in a normal year. I see all of them. And our music students are not allowed to declare their specific music major until the end of their sophomore year. And mm -hmm. so in that fourth semester, uh, you know, a lot of students know that they're headed toward education or performance. Uh, and many of them really don't know that they can do theory as a major. And so I try and uh, I pitch the theory major to them. I invite them to uh, a theory research showcase that we do every spring. Uh, and, you know, that often gets students uh, pretty excited because they come into college and they think, you know, well, I'm going to be a performer or I'm going to be an educator. And they learn that that's not quite the right track for them, uh, but they don't know quite what is. They really enjoy their music theory classes, but what are you going to do with that? Uh, and so it's a chance for me to, uh, to really sell them on music theory and what they might do, um, being able to dig in a little bit more. Yeah. I love the showcase idea. Yeah. We do not do that. I wish we did. <laughs> and that is part of Furman Engaged, which is a university wide, uh, showcase of engaged learning and mentorship and research. Uh, it's part of our uh, comprehensive university program called the Furman Advantage. And so Furman Engaged is an awesome showcase that happens every year. The whole university, uh, normal business shuts down. And uh, every year, I think about 800 or so students, which is about a third of our student body, give a presentation of some sort whether that is a conference style presentation or a poster uh, or a more interactive session or a workshop. And so uh, our music theory majors then present a session 
that is very much set up like a conference presentation for us. So we'll either have two or three theory majors present uh, for 15 to 20 minutes and then 10 minutes Q&A. Uh, you know, I, I act as moderator, uh, introducing them, they give their papers, they have questions and their peers are, are asking some hard hitting questions. So it's a, it's just a fantastic opportunity for these theory students, not only to get the experience of being a junior professional, which they are, but also, uh, to get to celebrate their work. We know that as theorists, a lot of our work uh, happens, you know, behind closed doors and, uh, you know, our theory majors aren't speaking on a Tuesday afternoon recital, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a fantastic opportunity for them to get up in front of their peers um, and and talk about the, the wonderful and hard work that they've been doing all semester. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah, one thing that I wanted to ask you, Ben, I've also done uh, a little bit of mentorship of undergraduate research, about one paper per year. One thing that has always been on my mind is what are the requirements um, that Furman dictates or that you dictate as an advisor for your undergrads? Because it seems like here, nothing against what we have, but the requirements are so nebulous compared to, say, a master's thesis or a PhD dissertation. When you're writing a dissertation, you have all these requirements, all these milestones you got to hit. And then undergraduate, you know, even if you say, I'm really encouraging undergraduate research and I want to support and there's funding, which we do have funding, you know, we have $500 awards that you can get, but then the requirements themselves are not very clear. What is the end goal? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about, about that part because I'm, I'm curious about that. So our requirements are also quite open-ended. Uh, the only strict requirement that we have uh, has to do with the registration process. Students have to fill out an individualized instruction form uh, since this is not, we don't have a theory lesson like you would have uh, trumpet lessons or, or piano lessons. So they fill out an individualized instruction form where they describe what they're gonna do. And I have them format that uh, like they would an abstract for or a, a proposal, like they would a proposal yeah. for a you know, a mini master's thesis. And they work on that at the end of the semester prior to the semester that they're going to work uh, on the project itself. Other than that, you know, and the, the expectation that they'll engage in research and have a product, uh, the standards are pretty open. And so I have established some pretty strict, uh, or I don't like the use word strict. That's so, uh, that's a downer word. I've Clearly established defined. some clear uh some yeah. clear uh expectations in terms of both products and skills um so you know the products that i want to see at the end of their research time are a written paper of three thousand words which is about 10 pages but if you tell a music student 10 pages then eight of it can be music examples so about <laughs> about three thousand words and then a conference style presentation and so in the fall semester they give that presentation to the music department uh, we, we organize a quick presentation uh and then in the spring semester that's part of our firm and engaged uh engaged learning showcase um so so two products that they're working toward presentation uh, and paper. Um, and the presentation generally falls before the final paper is due. I love that because it models the scholarly process of presenting your research at a conference 
getting feedback from your peers and other experts in the field, and then taking that feedback and incorporating it into your uh, final product, which for our students is their paper or their senior project, you know, and for uh, when they emerge into the professional world will be a, uh, you know, hopefully a publishable project. Um, and so those are the two products that my students are going to produce every time they do an independent study. And then I also have skills that I want them to work on. And those skills are analysis, research and reading of both primary sources, uh, being of course music, but also writings and secondary sources, um, writing and speaking. And so it's really important that all students engage with those four skills every semester um, that they're doing an independent research project. Now, our students are only required to do, uh, per our catalog for the, for the Bachelor of Music and Music Theory, they're only required to do one independent research, and that is their senior project, which typically comes in the spring of their senior year. But we really find that that's not enough and that that's too late, especially for our students who want to go into graduate school. So we strongly encourage them every semester that they know they want to be a music theory major, which for most of our students is either three or four semesters, we encourage them to do an independent uh, study, an independent research project. And so usually by the time they get to that senior project, they've done two or three independent studies before that, which is fantastic because, you know, the first one, they're, they're sort of, they're figuring it out. Uh, and they're going to bomb some things. They're going to do really awesome at some things, but they're just figuring out how to do music research at a really intense uh, investigative level, right? Uh, and so the more practice they can get, the better they get at it. And I find that by the third or fourth time they've done it, they know exactly what they're doing. They know the parts of the paper. They know the process uh, from start to finish, and they're really comfortable with that. And I love that. That prepares the students to go on to graduate school if that's what they're doing um, really successfully. As the students are thinking about their multiple research projects, if they're doing three or four of them over the course of that junior and senior year, I encourage them to really broaden their area of study hmm. and, you know, think about a different time period and a different instrument or a different ensemble or a different uh, voice so that they get some broad exposure. You know, every semester they're get, getting a really deep dive, but over the course of multiple, multiple semesters, I want it to be really broad. Uh, the exception is that for the senior project, which is their final hoorah, I let them do uh, whatever they want. Not quite, but you know, within reason, uh, whatever they want. That's really great. We've had the same problem at DBU with students completing a project in one semester. Uh, the capstone, our capstone's a little bit longer than that. They have to write a little bit more than that. But um, we have a theory undergrad degree. It has a senior capstone. We have about the same number of students in our program. Um, and I've, I've mentored several of these. And I finally actually wrote a complete, I went through the process of like changing our curriculum one of the major things that I changed was making the senior capstone two semesters instead of one so that in the first semester they kind of prepare, analyze, uh, write a proposal, and then in the second semester they can do the writing itself, the presenting, that kind of thing. So yeah. I think it is a lot for an undergrad to under to take it on 
if they've never done a project like that before. And I remember Absolutely. feeling that way as a master's student, you know, like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how to do this. I've never done something like this before. So I think it's definitely a valuable experience as an undergrad for sure. Yeah. And I'll say that the senior project uh, is a, a little bit larger in scope. It's typically six or 7,000 words. Uh, and then the independent studies, the pr- those preliminary uh, semesters are about 3000 words. So uh, there is a little bit bigger scope and I encourage seniors, final year students, uh, I encourage them in the fall semester to sort of get their uh, fall semester project done as early as possible so that we can start working toward that uh, senior senior project capstone, uh, since it is a little bit bigger in scope. Um, but what I find is that because the students have done this two or three times before that senior project, mm-hmm. uh, there's not as steep a learning curve on what am I doing? They know mm-hmm. exactly what they're doing. Uh, it might be a new methodology or a new repertoire or a new piece or composer. They know what they're doing. Uh, they're just ready to apply those skills that they've been building over the last couple of years. They're, they're ready to go. What kinds of projects have you worked on with students at Furman? Oh my gosh. So I saw this in the list of questions and I just had to go and, and pull up my list. All right. So here is a sampling. Uh, let's see. So imitative technique uh, and uh, and uh, cadential practice and parody technique in Victoria, his Missa Oquam Gloriosum, uh, Rameau and uh, Mode in his opera Castor and Pollux. That was a paper that a student presented at a professional conference in Paris, uh, which was just really exciting. Furman uh, supported that through the Furman Advantage and that was a fantastic experience for him. Um, Grungestalt and Schoenberg's Five Pieces for Orchestra uh, a Schenkerian study of, uh, of a Bach cello suite, um, uh, Edward Cohn's concept of stratification in Granger, uh, Chopin cello sonata, um, tonal ambiguity in Liszt, uh, chromaticism in Gesualdo, um, Haydn string quartets. I've, I've had a few students who have done Haydn string quartets, um, Charles Ives's, uh, Psalm 90, um, uh, uh, transformation and generative theories in Bach, um, uh, uh, Baroque Spanish uh, uh, composer Gaspar Sanz, uh, Bill Evans, jazz uh, harmony, um, CPE Bach, uh, PDQ Bach. Uh, that was a fantastic <laughs> one. Uh, and there right we go. I'm mentoring a student who's looking at uh, Haydn's E flat, uh, various E flat uh, major string quartets. So just a, a, a fairly wide variety of topics though overall quite traditional except for pd kubak i'm trying to encourage the students to really expand what they conceive of as an appropriate topic i think when we're uh when we're chatting early on about topics uh, a lot of them come up with you know beethoven piano sonatas or Haydn string quartets i think in part because that's a lot of what we study in music theory mm-hmm. uh and that's changing of course but change is slow and I, I think also in part, my students think that I want them to do something that's quite traditional. So I'm trying to encourage them to think outside of the box. And, uh, you know, if you want to write about Lizzo, let's do Lizzo. You know, uh, if you want to write about PDQ Bach, let's do, do PDQ Bach. If you want to write about, uh, you know, something that's more traditional, that's fantastic. But I'm really trying to encourage the students, uh, or at least to let them know that, hey, uh, it doesn't have to be dead white guys. I was going to say, students make statements all the time that take things for granted and especially it becomes uh, super apparent in their writing because you know one of my students the other day for example said well you know 
because everything has to end on one. And I was like, oh, well, gosh, well, you know, there's plenty of pieces that don't end on one. And I was like, name some. And then it was just crickets. So then I just like named pieces that I didn't, you know, that I knew didn't end on one, you know. And I was like, see, you know, there are a lot of pieces that don't end on one. But then when you go to read your students writing, especially undergrad projects, you know, you get a lot of statements like that um, to make assumptions or like put themselves into like traditional boxes that they don't even realize they're in sometimes, you know, and you kind of absolutely unravel that a lot. Um, very intentionally un unravel that. <laughs> yeah. So how do you overcome, help your students overcome those kind of weaknesses or assumptions, you know, that they bring, you know, bring to these research problems or projects? And, you know, what are some of those common areas of weaknesses that you see in your own students? So first, in terms of just possible repertoire that the students can explore, I first had to encourage myself to be more open. Mm -hmm. um, when students used to approach me with topics and ideas for topics, I sent them off uh, to do a little bit of preliminary research to make sure that there was enough secondary literature to ground their work so that they're not writing in a vacuum and so that they are engaging in the scholarly conversation. Uh, that, that's what being a scholar is all about. But that can be limiting, right? Uh, if we want mm -hmm. our students mm -hmm. uh, to consider exploring new repertoires, new genres, uh, new styles, new musics, then there might not be as much secondary lit. And so that can be a form of gatekeeping, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I had to, I have stopped now saying you can't do this or I don't recommend that you do this unless you can really find some good other analytical models for, for that music, because that just perpetuates the narrowness of our field. Um, and so that's something that I've, I've tried to overcome myself. Uh, and then in terms of encouraging students to explore more broadly, you know, I have that, uh, that request of them that, that every semester they study a different time period, a different medium, um, and so I just, I constantly remind them, Hey, you haven't done anything that's, uh, more recent. And they're like, Oh, do you mean Schoenberg? No, that's not recent anymore. Uh, you know, let's, let's think more recent, more years recent ago. than that. Right. Right. A hundred years. Um, yeah. So funny. And so, uh, that's, that's an ongoing process. I wouldn't say that I'm terribly successful yet at encouraging students to, to really branch out, but I think we'll get there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so funny with, students still thinking that Schoenberg is new music, right? I like <laughs> Well, to, they do that because we tell them it is. Yeah, right? yeah. Right. Um, you know, I like to, um, when we talk, we start talking about that, I like to show them like a picture of like a bra and a zipper. And I'm like, these were invented in like 19, the 19 teens or the 1920s. We don't think that either of those are new technology, right? We don't think they're new <laughs> innovations, right? That's and fantastic. yet we think about music that's written in the 19 teens and 20s as new, right? And yeah. so... It is something that I think they, they're ingrained with, and so we have to kind of overcome that. <laughs> yep. Well, I found I have found teaching writing about music to be really challenging. It's hard to keep students from doing that kind of plodding through a piece thing where they're like, and then A goes to G sharp, and then to G, and then to F sharp, and then to F. And that is a lament based. Yes, I know. <laughs> I know what that is. Or they, you know, they don't know how to describe a musical event or they don't know how to take it beyond description and actually use a musical event as part of an analysis. So 
do you have any tips? <laughs> how have you, oh, uh, man. how have you helped your students with those things? Yeah, Jen, what I find is that students are either too specific, exactly mm -hmm. what you've said. Uh, let me tell you what every single note does in this piece <laughs> or in this passage, or they're overly general. Right. Right. Uh, and finding that middle ground uh, is just really difficult for them. And that's difficult for professional writers, too. That's something that we're all working on. One thing that I encourage them to do is um, to show, not tell. So show with your words. Don't tell us what's happening, but show us what's happening. Um, and then also to, as you're writing, imagine where you will use musical examples. And that's really important because if the students sit there and say, well, I'm going to talk about measures one through 20. All right. You're not going to put 20 measures of music on the page, probably. Uh, you probably really only need to talk about four or five measures or two or three measures, you know, depending on exactly what it is they're talking about. Or if you're talking about the about form, uh, you might talk about the whole movement form at one point. But, you know, if you're doing a blow by blow, of form, you're really probably just talking about the exposition or just uh, P or just S or, you know. Um, right. And so I encourage the students to think about how are you going to use musical examples? Where, where are you going to use them and how? And then how is your prose going to match the scope of that musical example that you want to explore? Because I bet that you don't want to talk about every single note for five bars. I bet you also don't want to talk about uh, 30 bars of music at a time. And that tends to help students out. Um, mm. I encourage them to be more specific than less specific early mm -hmm. on, and then we can edit down. And all right, you know, the example that you described, here's every single note of a lament bass and how it works. How can we shorten that by half? Well, we can say, all right, there's a descending chromatic line uh, from, you know, from C down to G or whatever, you know, and that's just as descriptive and that helps the students out. Uh, and then they've achieved that um, balance between being um, overly, overly technical or overly descriptive, overly um, specific and overly general. Yeah. I found too, sometimes I will tell my students to write as though I'm their audience because they often write as though they're like, grandma who doesn't read music is their audience. And so they're explaining things that most people who would engage with writing like this already know. Yeah. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, reminding them of who they're writing for and the level of knowledge they can expect in the person they're writing for can be helpful too. That's wonderful. And especially thinking about their presentations that they're going to do. Mm -hmm. I encourage them to think about their audience as their peers who aren't specialists. And that's mm -hmm. what happens to us when we go to conferences as well, right? Exactly. Uh, we're going to a conference, whether that's, uh, you know, SMT or TSMT or Music Theory Southeast, you know, we're going to a conference of people who are all experts, but they might not be experts in our specific field, or there might be one or two people in the audience who, who are. Um, but, you know, talk to people who have your level of learning, but not your level of insight on this subject. So for my students then, uh, your audience are juniors and senior undergraduate students who haven't studied um, transformation theory uh, or who haven't studied Hepikoski and Darcy beyond what we what we do in fourth semester. Um, right. And that, I think, helps them figure out their audience and scope. I'll also encourage them to read it to their roommate. And if their eyes go crossed, either it's, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, overly dense or not not, you know, specific enough. 
Um, that tends to help. Um, this thought occurred to me as well that in terms of balancing that or finding that balance between being too descriptive and being too general, I find that it helps if you limit the student on a writing assignment for the amount of music that they're going to write about that week or for that, you know, so you're only going to write about the exposition today, or you're only going to write about, you know, uh, the first, uh, stanza of this, uh, of this lead, um, and limiting them in that way also helps. Um, especially if you give them a target word count, because then that says, all right, well, I'm only writing about 10 measures of music. I only need 20 words. Well, no, but you also don't need a thousand words. Maybe if you write 150 words about it, that, that finds that balance that you might need. Yeah. yeah. Putting into bite-sized chunks. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. In fact, the whole writing approach that I take for the students throughout the semester are bite-sized chunks. We talk about early on what the art architecture of their paper is. Uh, and this is something that is more or less universal, no matter what the topic is. You're going to have an introduction. You're going to have a lit review. You're going to have a methodology section. Then you're going to have the body of your paper, and you're going to have a conclusion. And those things are going to be about these proportions. Your intro is going to be about 10% of your paper, your conclusion about 5% your lit review about 10%, your methodology 10 to 15%. And then that leaves, if my math is right, 65-ish percent for the body of your paper. And that builds a well-balanced paper, a well-balanced argument, um, no matter what the topic is, right? There's a little bit of flexibility uh, built in there, but that helps keep everything in scope. It also helps the students not write uh, 2,000 words about the exposition and then uh, get through the development and recap in the next 200 words, right? Um, right. I've got a student who's writing on sonata form right now. Not everything is sonata form, but this semester is. So um, that's where that uh, it's just uh, high on my mind right now. But, you know, I am a planner. I am a plotter. I am a, uh, a strategizer when it comes to balancing and planning a paper. And I think that helps uh, students, um, you know, visualize how everything's going to come together at the end. And then throughout the semester, every time they read an article, they're writing about it. Um, and I tell students, when you read an article, you can either flip, skim, or read. You can flip through an article, you know, read the first and last paragraph. Uh, if it seems like it might be useful, skim through it. If it seems like it might be really useful, read the whole thing in detail and then write something about it. If you, if you flipped through it, write a sentence. If you skimmed it, write a couple of sentences. If it's going to be foundational to your approach and your methodology, then write a paragraph about it. Um, and then if the students are doing that every time they read something, all they have to do when they write their lit review is put all those together in a logical way and tidy things up. Um, likewise, for each analysis assignment that they do every week, I usually have them write about 150 words about that. Um, and then when it comes time to, quote unquote, write your paper, what you're really doing is looking at all of those uh, eight or 10 or 12 writing samples and figuring out how they might fit together in order to form the argument that you're going to end up making. Um, and that really takes a lot of the pressure off of the students when they're like, oh my gosh, I have to write 3000 words. Yes. But when it comes to sit down and quote unquote, write, you're really going to be assembling from things that you've done all along. And you're actually going to find that you're not writing too much new stuff, except for that, um, contextualizing introduction and that uh that conclusion 
Yeah, that's great. One of the things that you've, you've said a couple of times is talking about students' arguments. And how do you get students to think about making an argument um, with their projects? Um, oftentimes, students come to theory thinking that all you do is identify chords and you write Roman numerals. Uh, but really, music theory is about you know coming up with arguments or perspective on a way to approach music or a piece and things like that. And then theory is defending that argument. So can you talk a little bit about how you get students to think about crafting an argument for a piece? That's probably the most challenging upper upper tier uh, concept for the students to grasp. Uh, you're exactly right. They come and they say, well, this piece is really cool. I'm going to write about it. And then we spend you know, half the semester doing analysis and figuring out how it's really cool. Um, mm -hmm. But you, you can't just give a blow by blow, by blow uh, that turns into the most boring paper that nobody ever wants to read, including <laughs> the students. Uh, they don't want to yes. deliver uh -huh. that paper. They don't want to write that paper. They don't want to read that paper and neither do their peers. So that's, this, that's, is, this piece is cool is not a good enough argument either. I'm going to tell you no, why this piece is cool. Not. I mean, it's good for BuzzFeed. Or beautiful or, like, you or know, interesting. Yeah. Right. You can put that online, but that doesn't work on a scholarly paper. Yeah. So one thing that I find that's really useful is parallel to the students having an analysis assignment every week, they also have a secondary lit reading assignment every mm. week. So, you know, if you're if you're writing on PDQ Bach, then go and find uh, start building your bibliography, uh, find do a search, do a do a Rillum uh, search, do a JSTOR search, find 10 articles on PDQ Bach um, or PDQ Bach adjacent and put them in your bibliography, choose two to read, read two of those and then, you know, flip skim or read, uh, write those summaries. And that allows the students to see the kinds of arguments that other people are making. And so that pulls them out of the, uh, this piece is really cool. And here's, uh, here's what happens that pulls them out of that. And that gives them other analytical and argumentative models to follow, uh, which is really helpful. So that about halfway through the semester, we pivot from analysis work and secondary lit work to thesis crafting and then uh, paper assembling work. And so when we're ready to make that shift about halfway through the semester, they've read several things that have presented uh, good, solid arguments. And so they know what an argument looks like. Uh, and I'll usually warn the students, all right, next week, we're going to talk about what your argument's going to be. Uh, and I'm going to ask you, so what? Because those are two of the scariest words that a professor or uh, somebody at a conference, you know, an audience mm -hmm. member raised yeah. their hand and they say, so what? Uh, and, you know, then your life flashes before your eyes and it's uh, terrifying <laughs> You break out into cold sweats. Um, so, you know, about halfway through the semester in one of our weekly meetings, we'll sit down and say, all right, this piece is really cool. What do you think you found? And then I'll ask them, so what? And I'll sit there in silence and they will, too. And, you know, we're comfortable with silence to an extent. Uh, and then they'll start sort of spitballing, well, maybe this. And I will take that and repackage it a little bit. You know, so are you thinking about this? And then, you know, sort of back and forth, we refine. And then their work for the next week will be, all right, come up with three possible arguments that you can build and list three pieces of evidence from your analytical work that would support each of those three arguments. Often, those three arguments are three different shades of the same argument. Um, 
which which tells us that the students are uh, they've got a pretty clear idea of what they want to do, which is exciting. Sometimes students come back and they say, I just don't know what I'm going to do. And then I'll guide them a little bit more. Uh, a little more strongly, but, you know, I often find that students have a pretty good idea what they want to write about, even if they don't realize that it's an argument. So we'll take that then and we'll say, how can you cast that as an argument? You know, um, for example, Haydn's music is humorous. All right. Well, how can we using the analytical apparatus that you've been working with this semester and the repertoire that you've been working with this semester? How can you show that Haydn's music is humorous or that some of Haydn's uh, string quartets are humorous and others aren't? Um, so I've got a student who's working on Haydn's E-flat string quartets this semester, and uh, he has decided, uh, and I think uh, accurately so, that some of them, uh, a strategy is humor and in others uh, it isn't. And so uh, he's going to do a little bit of, uh, you know, here's why these are humorous. Here's why these uh, are more straightforward. You know, they're not uh, defying our expectations in this way. And he's he's pretty much this is a senior student. Uh, he's applying to graduate school. So he's he's been around the block a few times. Um, he's, he's pretty much got it down now uh, to where he's ready to build those arguments. But that's a skill that is really difficult for students to develop. And the more exposure we can give them to other scholars writings and other scholars argument building um the the better we can equip them yeah it's really good i'm going to take a bigger picture so all of this is basically mentoring right you're you're like coming alongside a student and helping them put together their own independent research so how did you cultivate that skill and yeah. how did you, you know, kind of end up in that role with students? That's a great question. And so my undergraduate, I had a wonderful undergraduate education. But I think I was the first person to go into music theory as a field in at least recent memory. I'm sure not ever. I'm sure there had been some before me. But I, I don't think my advisor, uh, who was my primary instrument professor, really knew quite what to do with a music theorist, you know? <laughs> That's that's totally understandable. I was I was supposed to uh, graduate and leave the world and go be a saxophonist or a band director, <laughs> uh, not a music theorist. Uh, and so I don't think that uh, I got really a lot of mentorship when it came to the writing process and the here's how you apply to graduate school process and mm -hmm. all of those sorts of things. Um, and so when I started firm, I was like, you know, I really want to give my students some of those uh, some of those attentions and those skills that I didn't get myself. Um, I also am an adv the advisor for most of these students, the faculty advisor um, for most of these students. And so that helps us to build a relationship, a mentoring relationship in a slightly different context. Um, and my approach to mentoring and teaching and uh, guiding, directing research projects has really shifted and grown over the years, um, really as a result of having become an advisor and knowing and having a greater role in what my students are going to end up doing once they leave Furman. Uh, and then also wanting to provide my students with some of the hands-on mentorship that I don't think I've received uh, as much of as I would have liked. And so... I'm a very methodical person. Y'all know me. Y'all know that's how I work. Uh, so every week when my students come in for their uh, for their independent research meeting, 
we'll sit down and we'll usually spend the first five minutes talking about how has your week been? How are you doing? Uh, both at, sort of as a student and as a human being, because our students are human beings, mm -hmm. surprise. Um, mm -hmm. You know, how's life going? Because um, usually and they're music majors, right? And they're at Furman, which is a tough school. So usually their level of stress is somewhere between seven and 10. Um, <laughs> rarely, unless it's the first week of the semester, is it uh, below five. And so it's really important if we're going to make great progress in their research to calm down and to center ourselves and to do a check-in and to breathe and to transition from uh you know from the hectic world that is their student life to the really intense world that is their research career right um and so we spent about five minutes talking about you know how's school going how are you doing everything going all right um how, how are your grad school applications uh, going, uh, if that's what you're working on, which, uh, you know, for my for my senior who's working right now, he's uh, who he's he's exploring and also learning how expensive graduate school applications are. Uh, you know, so so we do that sort of check in every week and that's a great opportunity for advising um, and mentoring, really uh, intense mm -hmm. mentoring. And then. Um, we start with the assignment sheet that I sent the students at the end of the previous week, and we go down list by list by list. Here, this was your uh, reading assignment. This was your methodology assignment. This was your analysis assignment. This was your writing assignment. And then for uh, for juniors and seniors who are headed toward grad school, there's usually a grad school assignment too. Like you know, that might be research grad programs or work on your CV or personal statement. And so we'll go down the list and take care of everything. And then we'll talk about their goals for next week. Uh, and at the end of the uh, at the end of the hour, I will type up a, a weekly assignment sheet and send it back to them, so they know exactly uh, what it is we discussed uh, would be their goals. These aren't my expectations for them, but these are expectations and a work plan that we have co-created. Right, that's really important uh, for students driving their own bus. Right, mm -hmm. um, so you know we co-create, we uh, come up with things that they want to work on, and that we both think they should work on. Then I send them that uh, that weekly assignment sheet, and they know that uh, you know the next week we're going to go through each of these things. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think starting that hour together with some time to check in and center is really fantastic, uh, a great way to lean in toward mentorship and help take care of our students holistically. And then being really thorough and methodical in our research work and then talking about, all right, here's what the next week's going to look like uh, is a good way for us to transition out of, you know, my office and your intense research world back into, you know, uh, the wild, as Ben Graff, you like to put it, right, out in the wild. Um, and that... You know, I wasn't as I wasn't great at this uh, the first couple of times I did it. I think my first semester uh, mentoring a student's research project, I was pretty terrible. I had just come from UNT, which was super intense mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, had Ph.D. students and master's students. And while Furman students are wonderful, they are undergraduate students. And so I didn't make that great shift. And I wasn't very uh, I was I was a research mentor. I wasn't a student mentor. Uh, and so developing into that student mentor personality uh, and approach has just been really important and really rewarding. Uh, I can see that my students are appreciative and I can see that it's effective for them achieving their goals and for them going on to the next stages of their career. That's really great. 
That is that. that is great, and I appreciate the end of the wild reference. I, I stand by it. <laughs> ben, I have started to say that in class so much more. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, since since the last episode that we did together, and I learned that phrase from you. Uh, I have I have started using into the wild. The students appreciate it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. My question actually was related to yours, Jen. So I'm I'm glad that was. Oh, good. I'm glad you asked it. It's kind of tangential to mentorship, but one of the things that I kind of fear, I guess, as a mentor of undergraduate projects is the project that you really want to help a student on, but you feel drastically underprepared in that area. You know, like I advised this project that involved like Korean drumming. And I'm like, not only am I not a percussionist, but I have no familiarity with Korean music and this particular composer. I really want to help broaden the repertory that we're analyzing. I really want to like help this student do this project. But then like at the same time, I'm in no way, shape or form prepared to advise this paper. You know, yeah. so do you, is there, is there anything in the answer may just be like, you have to go out and do, you know, the, the pre-research as your student is doing it or alongside. And, but is there anything that, you know, if you run across that or you kind of encountered that and do you have any words? <laughs> yeah. So what you just said, you know, uh, do the pre-research. I think that's an important part, but I think that is so secondary or tertiary or well, what's next quaternary. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think that's actually not the most important thing for us to do. I don't think we have to go and before our students learn that we're frauds, become an expert in something. I don't think that's necessary. Right, right. I think that we first have to get over our own fear. Second, have to trust our students. And third, have to trust our skills as researchers, right? And as people who know how to take those scholarly skills that we have been developing over, you know, a decade or decades uh, and apply them to any given new problem or new project. And so we got to get over our fears. We got to trust our students. Uh, and we have to know that our skills, our skills are broadly applicable, um, right? Because that's what we're trying to teach our students as well, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then we learn alongside of our students. So I think that comes comes in at that point. And I will ask the students, especially if it's a topic that I don't know much about, when they're doing that secondary lit research, um, you know, when they're building their bibliography, please send me your bibliography, send me the articles that you're going to read for the week, and I will read them too, or I will skim them as well. Um, send me the pieces that you're going to look at for this week, and I will take a look at them as well before you come into my office. Um, I tell students who especially I tell students, especially those who are doing projects that I'm not terribly familiar with, that by the end of this, you're going to be the expert more than I am. I'm the expert in the research process, but you're going to be the expert in PDQ Bach or Gaspar Sons or, you know, Bill Evans. Uh, you know, I, I know a little bit about those topics, but you're going to know a lot more about those specifically. I'm going to I'm going to help guide you in your research skills. Uh, but it's really you who are going to become the expert here. Uh, and I think that mirrors also our path as graduate students later on and then our path as professionals. Uh, because once we get uh, 
into the wild of, uh, of academia as, you know, bona fide grownups with real jobs, I doubt we're all going to research our dissertation uh, topics for the rest of our lives, right? Hopefully, we're going to take those skills that we learned and we're going to apply them to new and fun things, um, especially, you know, after after promotion or tenure or, you know, when, whenever the whenever we're not so afraid anymore um, of getting away from our uh, fields of expertise. Um, and so we got to model that for our students. We got to model that yeah. uh, sort of wild abandon. Uh, <laughs> I tell my undergraduate students, well, all of my students are undergrad. I tell my theory three and four students, my second year students at the beginning of our year together, um, that my personal motto is that I hope that I always have more questions than answer. I hope that I always have more questions than answers. Uh, because, you know, I want to, I want to ask a question. I want to learn and I want that what I've learned to inspire two more questions that I can then go and ask and answer and it, for to, it to create this spiral of deeper and deeper learning that's just so satisfying. Uh, I also uh, ask those students, is it better to wonder or is it better to know? And we usually have some debate because there are students who adamantly uh, tell me that it is better to know. In fact, most most undergraduate students, I think, uh, mm -hmm. are more comfortable with knowing rather than wondering. And I think that's part of the maturation process, right? Uh, we, we get more comfortable with wondering and with not knowing uh, as we as we grow up, you know, and become uh, bona fide adults um, mm -hmm. in the wilds of academia, right? Uh, so I ask them, is it better to wonder or to know? And I am fully in the wondering camp. I like to know stuff too, uh, but I, I love to wonder. I think wondering is magical. Knowing is important. Knowing helps you survive, but wondering is magical, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then the last thing I tell the students is that I ask them, what is music theory, right? and we, they discuss and we have a you know, discussion. They usually come back and tell me, well, music theory is scales and keys and chords and these things. And yeah, those all go into what music theory does, but here's my definition of music theory. Uh, and I tell them that I think that music theory is the discipline that asks the question, what is the nature of music, you know? And so I tell them, you know, my motto is that I hope I always uh, have more questions than answers. I'm a person who likes to wonder more than I like to know. And I think music theory is the field that uh, asks the question, what is the nature of music? And that helps me get over my fear uh, as a very long answer to your question then, uh, <laughs> when I mentor projects that I'm not so comfortable with. Uh, you know, I'm okay with that. I'm okay jumping off a cliff or, you know, taking a leap and, uh, and learning with my students, trusting that I've got the research skills and tools and techniques uh, to transfer and to apply to a broad range of, of styles and musics and, you know, music broadly defined. And uh, I trust you as the student and I'm okay learning alongside with you. I think, you know, those kinds of projects are wonderful because then the student is teaching you as well. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's not scary, but you just have to get over your fear. Yeah. Yep. Totally. And it's hard. It's hard to, yep. Yeah, but we want our students to get over that fear, too. I mean, that's what yeah. happens in Theory 3. You learn secondary dominance and Neapolitans and all these things that change, you know, change the fixed uh, rules that students think uh, that theory is all about. And uh, I love that being open to wonder. Um, and that's, uh, that's what we want uh, for our students. And so we should be modeling that ourselves. Well, we yeah. are coming to the end. This has just been flown right by. But oh, I love it. 
Um, I want to get into some rapid fire questions. So we're not with your your wife isn't here. So we're gonna get really get some real nitty gritty music theory rapid fire questions here. So <laughs> oh, no, I'm afraid. <laughs> so we had to tone it down because uh, uh, Ben's wife is she's a psychologist and she's smarter than all of us. Um, but uh, <laughs> definitely smarter than me. I won't speak for you guys. <laughs> Um, and so, so we got some quick rapid fire questions before we uh, we get uh, get going here. Ben or Jen, do you have an idea? I have one right now. Go for it. Okay, so I want you, uh, Benjamin, to imagine that you are one of your students. So, like, what would you know, twenty one, twenty two year old Benjamin? What what piece of music or what composer would twenty two year old Benjamin want to be analyzing if they were, he was a theory major? with someone like you as their mentor? You know, I'm thinking back to when I was in college and the composer that I was utterly infatuated with and still am, he's my hobby composer, uh, is Gustav Mahler. Mm. Uh, I, I just love Mahler. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm doing Mahler 2 next uh, in the spring with uh, Greenville Chorale and Greenville Symphony. It'll, it'll be my first time to sing it. I'm, I'm so excited. That's uh, so that's, that's a little bit of a... Of a, of a straightforward, uh, nerdy answer. Uh, but, you know, uh, honestly, 21-year-old Benjamin would have wanted to study more Mahler. So I'm going to stick with it. Nice. Great. I love that. <laughs> do you have That's one, Ben? A... Mine was going to be, do you start writing the intro or do you start writing the body of the paper first? Yeah, so my students, uh, they start writing the body first, though they don't know it's the body. Uh they start by writing, you know, whatever their analysis work was for the week. They're going to write 150 words about it. And that's going to become material from which they can uh, uh, combine and draw from for their uh, for the body of their paper. So even though they don't know that it's going to become the body of their paper, they start. Uh, it's a you know sort of sneak attack. They're, they start on the body of their paper because really we don't switch to thesis mode argument building mode until about halfway through the semester so they don't they might not be ready for their introduction until then yeah right. yeah no i've heard both and some people are really just the, their natural style you know mine's more of a word vomit into the body of the paper first <laughs> yes if i'm being 100 percent honest you know if i'm being 100 honest i am a person who likes to sit down and start with the introduction um but you know, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not drinking my own medicine there. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> All right, so here's mine. How would your weekly plans with students be different or changed if a student was working with music that ha is not written in staff notation typically, like maybe popular music or electronic music? How would that impact your weekly plan for them? Yeah. So you know, my weekly plan typically consists of analysis work, methodology work, and secondary lit work. And that just becomes uh, more challenging uh, because we have to be more creative, right? And so our analysis work is probably going to be a lot of listening work. Um, I mean, hopefully when students are doing analysis, they're listening, but that listening becomes even more no intense uh, if mm -hmm. the music is notated in ways that aren't traditional um, or is not notated at all. So that, that work becomes uh, more intense. And we have to think about how we want to be able to represent that, uh, that, that in, their, in their paper. Um, so that's, that's going to be 
a lot more creative than I think it would. Uh, it's going to require some uh, some big flexing of those brains, uh, you know, to think about how we can um, talk about non-traditional, at least in music theory, uh, musics in more traditional ways, right? So that's going to become mm -hmm. more challenging. Likewise, we're going to have to brainstorm and figure out uh, what secondary lit is there. If there isn't very much, then you know, especially on a particular composer or artist or piece, then can we think adjacent to that composer or mm -hmm. adjacent to that style or piece and find some secondary lit? If we can't find that in more traditional, uh, you know, uh, peer refereed uh, secondary literature sources, then what other kinds of sources might stand in and be more appropriate given the work that they're gonna do? This is all hypothetical because I haven't had a student who's taken me up on, uh, you know, be, be crazy yet for their <laughs> rep. but. You know, we've got to adapt. Um, what I've what I've stopped doing is saying no because I'm uncomfortable with or I don't know mm -hmm. how to. You know, so I've got to be I've got to be willing to to adapt my approach as well. And it's going to be a lot of uh, uh, tandem exploration. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of our work together in the office uh, might be sort of us side by side. Uh, brainstorming and going to the computer and thinking, all right, what happens if I'm doing a lit search? What if I search for this, this, and this? All right, this came up. All right, that didn't throw up anything. Uh, you know, well, let me manipulate those search terms and see what we can find. So actually, we're probably going to do a lot more of that work together uh, because mm -hmm. at that point, we, we really are um, learning at the same pace, at the same rate, um, which, you know, uh, I've tried not to think of as a scary thing, but as just another opportunity for me to learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a great way of modeling that, you know, to your students there, this is, we're, we're doing this together and this would be, this is how you would go about, you know, a problem that may have, uh, not a lot of solutions or not a lot of available resources. And so that's so great. important, especially when modeling things that we aren't terribly familiar with or maybe familiar with at all the most important words that we can say to our students are i don't know mm -hmm. you know um and that can be that's that produces a little bit of anxiety uh, especially if you're uh if you're new in a position or aren't um don't have a lot of security in your position you know and you feel like you have to be the expert who knows everything all the time but that's just not the case and so saying i don't know but let's find out is uh, can be some of the most powerful and important things that you can say to a student in uh, that kind of project in that situation. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast. And you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening. <laughs>